Thank you, guys. Um, I'm really excited to teach on this topic. I know, I'm, I know that I'm not the eloquent speaker that Rick and Dan are, uh, but I really love Washington, so I'm excited to talk about Washington and what it's like to live here in Washington. And I feel like an expert in that topic because I was born here and raised here and lived my whole life here, so I think that qualifies me to some degree. <laughs> Um, I was born in Edmonds, uh, grew up in Everett, uh, spent most of my life, though, in Snohomish. And then, as many of you know, I spent a lot of time in the Marysville area these days. Uh, so I've been in the Pacific Northwest my whole life, and I identify with the culture here. Uh, in the summertime, during that skinny two-week window when it's sunny outside, and everybody's happy and joyful, I'm the only person sitting in the corner just pouting, waiting for it to rain again. <laughs> uh, so I get Washington culture, and I love the things that Washington has to offer. I love the nature here. I love that you can just open a window and see just wildlife and trees and plants from this area that are unique. And I love that you can look in almost any direction and see mountains. And I love that the one direction there's not mountains, we have a beach. Even if it's cold and gray, it's still a beach. Um, I love that Seattle is a place of self-expression that encourages that and values that. Uh, that's why so many notable artists and musicians come from this area. So I personally can't think of a better place to live, and about the only thing that could make Seattle better is if it had its own hockey team, and it's getting its own hockey team, so woo! <laughs> Uh, people are already starting to call them the Seattle Freeze, which is a great name for a hockey team. <laughs> It's a bit of a downer, though, that the phrase Seattle Freeze already exists. <laughs> if you've never heard the term Seattle Freeze, it's a common term used to describe the fact that it's hard to make friends here in Washington. It just sounds negative, other than in the context of a hockey team. Seattle Freeze doesn't bring positive vibes. And to be cold, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad descriptor. It, there's just different types of cultures in the world. There's high-context cultures and low-context cultures, warm cultures and cold cultures. So it just, it's just another one of the options. It's not positive or negative. But cold doesn't ring to bell positive things. Think of other times that you hear the word cold. Your food's getting cold. You've got cold feet, cold-hearted. If you think cold-hearted sounds positive, try using that on your wife. It's not going to go well. Cold does not usually equal good. But let's look at what it actually means to be a part of a cold culture. Cold cultures are focused on efficiency, productivity. They value personal freedom, independence, and structure. All not inherently good or bad qualities. In contrast, warm cultures are relationship-focused, highly flexible, they value inclusion, hospitality, and grouping. Also, not inherently good or bad things. It's just the way they are. So if we were to line up a good old-fashioned pro-con chart and look at the things that both cultures bring to, bring to life, they'd pretty much break even. The reality, though, is that the Seattle Freeze is a term that is specifically meant to shed light on the relationship tension in the Pacific Northwest and how bad it is. Because Seattle is productive and industry-focused and efficient, 
It is home to big-time industries like Amazon and Microsoft and Boeing. I know that Boeing is in Everett, but close enough. And because of that, we attract lots of people from other states who come here for employment. And those people come here, and they're pretty much in agreement that it is indeed difficult to make friends here. One of my friends moved here from Virginia several years back. She was new to the area, didn't have friends out here, didn't have a community. She came out here because her husband found work here. While still being, un, uh, being new, she's unpacking boxes still at her house. She looks across the street and she sees that her neighbors are working in their yard. So great, she thought, this is a perfect opportunity to go meet them. So she's probably already feeling nervous because she's from Virginia and she doesn't have some home-baked dish to bring to them. And so she's walking over empty-handed, but with a smile on her face. She's excited to meet them. And as she's crossing the street, they stop working on their yard, go in their house, and lock the doors. <laughs> she knocks, nobody answers. That is the perfect description of what the Seattle Freeze looks like. And as my friend was relaying this story to me, she says to me, can you believe that happened? And I said, yeah, that's what I would do. <laughs> when I weigh the difference between warm and cold cultures against each other, independence sounds appealing to me. Personal freedom sounds appealing to me. It sounds hospitable in its own way because even though I'm not pouring into you, I'm not demanding that you pour into me. So that's a win-win in my opinion. It's easier and it's more comfortable. So when I pick a direction that I have to go towards, I'll go with whatever's most comfortable. Comfort becomes my tipping point. And for me, that means I'm part of the cold culture. That is, after all, the Seattle special. It's what I grew up in, it feels good, so why not? The problem with that is that we don't make other decisions this way. We don't make other decisions based on comfort. If you were, for example, living paycheck to paycheck, a place that many of us have been in our lives, you typically don't count that as a win. You don't count that as a neutral place in your life. Because if you've ever lived paycheck to paycheck, you know that although you're making ends meet and you're making it week to week, it takes one check engine light, one ER visit, and your whole system is out of balance. It's not a neutral zone. It's not a... It's not happy and comfortable there. It is stressful, and you are constantly hoping that nothing bad happens. So ideally, you work to create a buffer. You find ways to earn more, to spend less, so that you have a safety net, so that when something bad happens, your whole world isn't disturbed. So while cold culture is, gets things done, it's efficient, it's productive, it feels burdenless, it's still flawed. It's flawed because it is a paycheck-to-paycheck -paycheck community system. It is functional in the meantime. It meets your needs for right now. But one dip pushes the whole thing out of balance. While it may be comfortable, it's not sustainable. In preparation for this, I read several books, but one of them I'd like to recommend to you. It's called Lost Connections. It's by Johan Hari, and I'm probably saying that name wrong. But he talks about our connections with other people. 
While the big premise of the book is about depression, and he spends the first chunk of it talking about the pharmaceutical company and antidepressants, if you can push through that and get to the middle section, he talks a great deal about the lost connections we have in our lives. So I'm looking at the separation of connections in people's lives when it comes to people and meaningful work, our lost connections and values and trauma, a hopeful future and more. While I want to say that it's unique to the Seattle area, I also, and I'm sorry to my generation, I'm throwing us under the bus here, I think millennials struggle with this more than other groups. I think as millennials, it's harder for us to find those deep connections because our culture doesn't promote that. But I'm also sorry to the grown-ups because it's not unique to us as millennials. Other grown-ups your age are feeling it too. <laughs> it is also location-based. It's harder in Washington to make friends. It's harder in Washington to form these deep connections. So the problem is established. We have an unsustainable system on our hands. How then do we break the cycle? I would argue that the church is responsible for filling the gap. The church is responsible for adding community. When we look at what's commonly referred to as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see a theme erupt. These books of the Bible were all first-hand accounts, uh, witness statements of people who walked and talked with Jesus. They all observed things from their, own, from their own angle, from their own place, and they all heard Jesus say, in short, that our responsibility is to love God and love people. In Matthew 22, it says this, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So in short, what you see Jesus say there is love God, love people. Mark, from his own perspective, retells the same story. And right in the middle, he, he says, this is what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is to love your neighbor as, itself, as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. In short, love God, love people. Luke, same thing. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. John says the same thing. He's just a little bit more long-winded about it, so I'll let you read it on your own. But <laughs> trust me when I tell you it's there. He says to love God, love people. In middle school, I had a teacher who told us, quite plainly, if I go through the trouble of repeating myself, of saying something more than once, that's probably important. You should write it down. It's going to be on the test. I have found that to be a helpful tip in all the areas of my life. If something is repeated to you a lot, it is probably important, and it is probably going to be on the test. Think about the relationships in your life, your friends that tell you the same thing over and over again. It's probably really important to them that you remember that. 
If your parents are telling you constantly to clean your room, you should probably clean your room. And if the Bible is repeatedly telling us that our job is to love God, love people, that's probably important. You should probably write it down. It's probably going to be on the test. <laughs> Full disclosure, um, I don't think there's an actual test, like with a number two pencil and a fill-in-the-blank bubble form. But I do think that this is important. If it's repeated at such great lengths, it's probably important. We should focus on that. Even the Old Testament, which is mostly law and kind of that boring part that you ignore, even it points to loving God and loving people. Think of the Ten Commandments. A lot of you have heard of the Ten Commandments, even if you didn't grow up in the church. They're the famous rules of the Old Testament. Well, when we look at what they are, you shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or bow down to it or worship it. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall remember and keep the Sabbath day holy. Respect your father and mother. You must not commit murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not give false evidence against your neighbor. You must not be envious of your neighbor's goods. You shall not be envious of his house, nor his wife, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. It sounds like a list of rules and a list of laws, because it is. But if you look more closely, it's about the relationship we have with God and with people. So when we look at these again, it reads like this. Love God, love God, love God, love God. Love people, love people, love people, love people, love people, love people. The first four rules focus on our relationship with God and how we can better love God. And this, the last six focus on our relationship with others and how we can better love others. So if we're loving God and loving others, the gap in the Seattle culture will naturally fill itself. It is loving to value others. It is loving to build community. It is loving to be better neighbors. It is lo loving to be better friends. So how do we do that? Well, perhaps you recognize Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is a really simple explanation of what humans need. Maslow developed it in the 1940s, and it's pretty simple. And when you look at it and how God has loved us, we see that God meets the needs of us coming down. He loved us and created us, and then he filled us with a purpose, and he established the church for us to give us loving and belonging, and through the church, he gives us our safety needs and our psychological needs. But being people, we're a little bit more simple-minded, and so we tend to work at this from the bottom up, which is why you commonly see churches on the, on the ground floor meeting the needs of other people. You see churches responsible for a lot of food banks, shelters, clothing drives. Even here at Allen Creek Community Church, we have the Seeds of Grace Resource Center, which is a food bank and works to meet the basic needs of other people. We start on that ground level, the meeting the physiological needs of other people. What, I, what makes me really proud to work here is that our Seeds of Grace Resource Center, though, goes up to the next level. We work really hard not to just do handouts on the ground level, but to do a hand up, which is why you're going to hear in the next few weeks talk, us talking about our year-end project here at Allen Creek, and it is to raise money so that we can rework our resource center area. 
so that we can create better meeting spaces because we have resource consultants that meet with people to help them with job applications, job training, resume prep, uh, housing applications, and really just those other things that getting your life in order. They work really hard not to just do the handout, but to do the hand up, to move up that pyramid. So if you're interested in giving to that when we talk about it more, please do that. Or if you're interested in sharing your time, we always need more resource consultants. We love people by meeting their needs from the ground up. So if we continue to do that, the gap will only be filled if we get to the place where we are meeting people's love and connection needs as well, when we start to be their family and their community. You could argue that um, that a government agency or a network of social services could meet people's physiological needs or their safety needs. But they cannot meet the needs of loving and belonging. Because as the classic Beatles song says, money can't buy you love. So now I don't think it's a difficult sell to you to say, let's do better at loving people. I don't sense that when I say that, you guys are like gripping your chair, like ready to come on stage and argue with me about it. Nobody is in there like, love is just a terrible idea. I'd rather go for hatred. <laughs> Which is why I think that Colossians, where I'm going to read from, is a really great passage. Because there's a letter written by a man named Paul, and he was writing it to the church of Colossia. So he wasn't trying to sell them on the idea of love. He knew that they already loved God and loved people. Matter of fact, that's what he says in the beginning of the letter. He talks to them as if they're Christians, as if they're already the church, because they are already Christians. They're already the church, and they already have this idea. He says literally, I've heard what you said. I've heard what you guys have done. You're doing great work, and keep it up. He's impressed with what they've done, with what they've, what they've accomplished in their city, and the news of what they've done has made it all the way to him, which is why chapter 3, where I'm going to be reading from, kind of hits you like a brick wall. Chapter 3 looks like this. Since you have been raised to the new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Not bad so far. Love God. That's what it says. <laughs> he continues in verse 5, though. So put to death the simple earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger and rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. That reads an awful lot like a do-not list to me. And he doesn't stop there. He follows that up with a whole do list. 
Verse 12 starts, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from one body you are called to live in peace. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So I'm not sure what it looks like when you guys are in the process of reading your Bibles at home. But here's what it looks like when I read this passage. (laughs) I actually rolled my eyes, and I kind of believe that if you don't roll your eyes, at least sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you're probably doing it wrong. Because when you read chapters 1 and 2, it's like this huge encouragement. It's, he just goes through this process of saying how great everybody is and what great work they're doing and boosting their ego just to knock it down with chapter 3. Chapter 3 reads like this to me. It sounds like, great job, do better. It sounds harsh. It sounds critical. It sounds like a list of things you can and cannot do. But I reread it because when something doesn't match the character of the author, that usually means I've misinterpreted it. So if Paul started the letter and ends the letter with how great you are doing, surely this isn't meant to sound as critical and harsh as it's come off. As a kid, when I was getting older, just to that point when I was able to be left home alone every now and then, my mom would always pack her stuff, and on her way out the door, she would say, Be good, which is a totally normal and reasonable expectation of a mother to her child. So she followed it then, though, with a list of reminders. Constantly the same three. Don't play with knives. Don't play with matches. Don't answer the door to strangers. Which was weird to me because on any given day, whether my mom was home or not, I typically did not play with knives or matches or answer the door to strangers. (laughs) Perhaps those are things my brother did, but not me. So why would my mom go through that list every time she left the house? Well, they highlighted the difference between good behavior and bad behavior. She didn't go through every rule of the house. She didn't say stuff like, hey, don't do these things, but also put your dishes in the sink when you're done with them. Don't make a mess. No TV till your homework's done. Be nice to your brother and sister. Well, sometimes she said that. But But she didn't go through every household rule with me on her way out the door. She just said those simple few. And it was just to highlight that there's a difference between being good and being bad. And she's just reminding me to be good. Like, I know you already do good things. Just keep doing that. And so when I look at Paul's lists, his do not list and his do list, they seem a lot more like encouragement to keep doing the right thing. They're just reminders things that highlight the difference between good and bad. Because it's not always easy to pick those behaviors out. When we look at the do not list more specifically, uh, this is what it looks like. Give into your, don't give into your early nature. Don't give into sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Don't lie to each other. It's a do not list, and it sounds like a bunch of rules, but really these are things that you would not intuitively want to do anyhow. 
They're not ways that you love other people. When you look at this list, they're all about the ways that you interact with other people. So while he spends a great deal of his letter stressing to love God, this list is a stress to love people. Similar lists exist throughout the Bible, and a very similar list exists in Romans. And in Romans, it's a different context entirely. It's saying, stop doing these things. Here, it's just a don't do these things. It's a lot more encouraging when you look at it that way. And the do list, the do list is really just the opposite of these things. So really, it's not two separate lists. It's one list. In contrast, we should be doing these things. We should be merciful and kind, humble, gentle, patient. We should make allowances for people's faults. We should forgive others. Those last two, we can also do on Facebook, not just in the real world. (laughs) We should love And separately, he says, we should love like God loved us. A really similar list to this exists in another place in the Bible, but there it's called the fruits of the Spirit. There it's listed as a list of attributes that you as Christ followers have already. You already have the ability to be kind and humble and gentle and patient. You have these within you. So really what Paul is saying here when he says do these things and he highlights it against the do not list is he's saying don't just have those gifts, use those gifts. Use those gifts in the way that you interact with other people. Um, Earlier, I told you about my friend who moved here from Virginia. The one who struggled to meet her neighbor. Well, she also told me this story about when she first moved here, she was struggling to find community, and she looked for it in every way she could. And at one point, she joined a book club, which was the closest thing that she could find to community. And it was a potluck style, so she brought food to share, and she made it at home with love because she's a true southerner, and that's what you do. And she put it in a disposable container so that she could leave the leftovers behind for the host which is what threw off the other attendees of the book club because they were all packaging their leftovers to take home with them, and she was saying, no, you can leave this here, and it was a whole thing. She could see differences like that between Washington and Virginia almost everywhere she went. She experienced the Seattle freeze. She experienced this difficulty to make friends and find community. The same friend told me that it wasn't until she found AC3 that she found her community. For those of you who haven't figured it out yet, I'm talking about our very own Jamie Dodds. She is instrumental to our church now. Our community would not be the same without her. But she found her community here when we were kind to her and welcomed her, when we were generous, when we took the time to build her and her family up. We spoke lovingly to her and we spoke truth. So maybe you've been missing community. Maybe you've just been missing something and you're not sure what it is. Perhaps you're Jamie Dodds, struggling to find your community. And perhaps we're the answer. But perhaps you're having a hard time finding us as the answer because I'm not the only Washingtonian in this room. So let me do my best right now to strip myself of that and say this. You are welcome here. 
You are invited. We want you here. We want you to be a part of our community. We're just really bad at introducing ourselves, and we're used to our neighbors walking away from us. So please give us a second chance. <laughs> we could use your help. You could be the part of our community. You could be the Jamie that we're missing. I know that when I'm sick, Jamie is the first person to offer to bring me soup. I know that Jamie is passionate about getting our live stream up and running all the time so that people who can't be here can still experience community. Perhaps you're part of the church that successfully gave Jamie a friend, friendly welcoming. Perhaps you are part of the community that did a good job already. And to that, the same words of Paul apply. I've heard about the great works that you guys have done. I've heard about them. And it's great work, and you should keep doing that. Awesome job. Keep going. But let me also say to you, don't forget that you're called to love God and love people. In Colossians 3, Paul also adds this. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This verse really sums it up. It's not just loving God and loving people. We're loving because God loved us. And so in continuing to love God, we do what he commands and love other people. And when we love other people, we show God that we love him. So it sounds like two commands, but really it's one. Love God and love people. So now in the weeks ahead, this is my challenge to you. I dare you, and I come from a generation where dare still means something. I dare you to love God and love people. I dare you to meet new people, perhaps in our own lobby. I dare you to meet your neighbors. I dare you to be kind to strangers. I dare you to be generous to your coworkers, to be humble in front of your spouse, to build people up around you intentionally. I dare you to forgive people. I dare you to forgive your Facebook friends. I dare you to be gentle and patient when you discuss politics. I dare you to be intentional about the way that you interact with other people because that's how you show God you love him. Let me pray for us. God, I just thank you for the great examples that you have in your teaching. Thank you for the simple explanation of what you'd like from us. Thank you for loving us first so that we are filled with the ability to love others. We ask that you influence this week, that you help us to be intentional about the way that we interact with other people, that you give us the grace and mercy that we are to extend to other people. And we thank you for everything that you've done in our lives, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>